When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. The Project Upland podcast is brought to you in part by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Adventure awaits. Hey, what's up, everybody? Nick Larson with the Project Upland Podcast. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us as always. Quick intro to the show today before we hop into today's interview. First up, we have another winner of some Project Upland gear, and that winner is Adrian Newton. Adrian Newton, I will be contacting you shortly after I record this intro, so you'll probably hear from me before you listen to this. But Adrian Newton has been sharing our podcast post, and he was randomly selected to be the winner of a piece of Project Upland gear. So hat, t-shirt, something like that. I'll get your name submitted to the Project Upland headquarters, and we'll have something on its way to you. Don't forget, you could win Project Upland gear too by doing any of these things, leaving us a rating or review of the podcast wherever you listen to it, sharing a podcast episode, or sharing one of our podcast-specific Facebook posts. If you see a, if you see an episode post on Facebook, or anywhere else for that matter, and you share it, and we see it, we will randomly select winners probably every week to win Project Upland Gear. So keep doing that. Leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, and share the podcast. Thank you for your support, and keep on doing it. Secondly, the Pine Ridge Grouse Camp Giveaway. We talked about it last week. It's been all over ProjectUpland.com and Facebook feed for the last couple of weeks. Survey 
has blown up. It's exceeded our expectations. We got a ton of entries, but you've still got a chance to win because the survey is open until tomorrow. Depending on when you're listening to this, I know that's not very useful to you. The survey is open until March 2nd, Friday, March 2nd, which happens to be tomorrow at midnight. You've got all day tomorrow. I'm going to post this podcast tonight. So hopefully you're listening to it within the first 24 hours. And if you haven't signed up for the Project Upland podcast giveaway at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, you need to do so. In order to do so, go to projectupland.com, look for the Pine Ridge Grouse Camp giveaway post, click on there. There'll be a survey to fill out, take you five minutes, super easy, get entered. The winner, one winner will receive a guided hunting trip, three days hunting, four nights stay, guided, everything included, all of that good stuff. Find out more about it on projectupland.com. So if you have not entered into that contest yet, please do so before the end of the day, Friday, March 2nd. Good luck. We will announce the winner on next week's episode of the Project Upland podcast. Lastly, before we jump into the interview, new Project Upland film came out today with fitting a guide from Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Earl the Pearl Johnson. It's a super cool film. If you've had the pleasure of meeting Earl or spending a day in the woods with him, whether it was hunting or going through a woodcock banding seminar at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, you'll know that Earl is quite the character. And it's evident somewhat in the Project Upland film, but really to get a sense of, of the character that Earl is, you got to spend some time around him. So the the film is a it's a really good film, as always, Project Upland film. It's it's a it's a great snapshot of Earl and who is just one of really, uh, as Jerry likes to say, a cast of characters that that all hang out and guide and do all sorts of stuff at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. And the film it is another one of the projects that came out of the, the trip that AJ and I and, and Project Dublin made to Pine Ridge Grouse Camp last fall, where we filmed a bunch of stuff and we've got more stuff coming, but you've, you're starting to see quite a bit of it now. And there's a new film on all over Facebook, website. It's everywhere. Everywhere you go to check out Project Dublin stuff, go check it out. And that will also give you another window sort of a sneak peek at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp and what you can expect if you decide to pay them a visit, which we hope you do because we love Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. They're a big supporter of this podcast and they have been from the start and we appreciate that and we love sending people to Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Okay, that's it for me guys. Let's jump into part two of my conversation with Greg Elliott from dogsanddoubles.com. If you've been a faithful listener to the podcast, you will you would have heard Greg a few episodes ago. I know I should have the number in front of me, but I don't. But if you scroll down the list, you will find part one of our conversation with Greg Elliott, where we started talking about vintage double guns and all sorts of fun stuff. Well, today we caught up with Greg while he was actually in Las Vegas. He was just finishing up a little tour at the Safari Club International Show. So this was a few weeks ago now. But we talked a little bit, we opened up the conversation talking a little bit about the SCI show. We talk about some London gun makers, some fancy stuff, a trip to London that Greg took. And then we dive into some info for you, the listener, where you can find value in vintage guns, uh, guns as investments, or maybe not. You'll get Greg's opinion on that. We talk a little bit about gun fit and all sorts of other fun stuff with 
vintage guns being the main topic of conversation. So let's welcome to the Project Open podcast for the second time, Greg Elliott of dogsanddoubles.com. Hey, Greg, welcome back to the Project Upland Podcast. How are you doing this week, man? I'm great, Nick. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. So uh, so last week when we were chatting in uh, part one of the the podcast series with, with Greg Elliott of uh, dogsanddoubles.com, uh, you were in Port, you were in Maine, I think, right? Yeah, I was in Portland, Maine. Yeah. Yeah, you're in Maine, and uh, now this week you are live from Las Vegas. So you're out in Las right. Vegas for the uh, SCI show, uh, Safari Club International. You got out there on Thursday, and uh, why don't you why don't you tell us a little bit of, of, of kind of about the show in general, and then uh, why specifically you're there because uh, it leads into our conversation today. Sure, sure. So the Safari Club show is uh, put on by Safari Club International, and this is uh, their annual uh, major get-together. They have uh, smaller get-togethers around the country other times of year, but this is the uh, main organization's uh, big annual um, event. And it's mainly focused on, as Safari Club is, it's focused on big game hunting. And it's big game hunting all over the world. So uh, there are people here, there are outfitters here, from uh, there's people here from Pakistan. There's people here from Africa, South America. Um, you can basically any kind of big game that you want to hunt, uh, from a leopard to all sorts sorts of crazy sheep I've never seen before in my life. This is the place to come to uh, to book a hunt, um, and that's what people do. You know, they uh, people join Safari Club and they get into the big game hunting, and then when you're a member, you can come to this event. <clears throat> And uh, meet with all these uh, professional hunters and outfitters uh, from everywhere, and plan trips, and uh, you know, get to you can you can meet these guys who are sort of uh, really well known professional hunters in Africa and stuff like that, and uh, talk to them about uh, the type of safari you want to put together. And there's also you know there's people here from like Alaska. There's a lot of uh, bear hunting stuff here. Sure. And there's so there's that end of the there's that end of the show, and then another end of the show is all uh, firearms. So a lot of the firearms are related to big game hunting. So there's a lot of custom rifles and uh, Kriegoff is here with their double rifles. And then um, there's a section where all of the uh, sort of premium gun makers in the world show up. So everybody from Purdy, uh, Hartman and Vice, Boss, uh, Fausti, I don't think Parazzi's here. There's a couple other Italian gun companies here, but they're all here and they bring, all bring their new stuff Um and they're, they're looking to take orders. And the reason I come is I can see all these guys. I can meet them all and I can see all their guns all in one place. Um, and it's a lot cheaper to come here than it is to go to London. And it's easier to do it here than it is to go to London and try to drive around and go to different gun makers. And every, basically everybody's – all the guys I want to talk to, there's like three rows and the whole show. And the shows – there's got to be a 100 rows at least. Uh, I find that section. I go there. I talk to these guys. And see their guns and hang out and uh, get to know them and get to know their guns. And it's just a great, it's a fantastic way to do that. There's really no, there's really no other way, no other event in the country that I know of that offers all that for you. Yeah, that's, that's cool. A uh, little side, have you ever, uh, have you been to London? Have you visit, visited some of these makers uh, over in Europe? I have, yeah. I've been to London. I've been to Purdy's, Holland's. Uh, I went to the old boss. Those are all their uh, shops. I've never been to their factories. And those, Purdy and Holland are uh, 
in the same, they're all in the West End. And you can walk, you know, between those. I think Williams' son's still over there. But, um, but like Hartmann and Weiss is in Hamburg, Germany. And uh, there's a couple German makers here that uh, obviously you'd have to go to Germany to see. So it's really nice that all these guys are just all crammed together. And, uh, and there's more. And they bring a, a, a large assortment of guns with them, too. Even if you go to some of these, some of their shops, it's not that uh, they usually don't have a lot of guns sitting around because they're they're not they're not retail like well, Purdy's in Holland's are retail operations, but like Boss, they don't have guns. It's they have a factory. They don't you know they don't have guns just sitting around. They're making guns for people, and then when the guns are made, they go out the door. There's no like you can't walk in off the street and buy a Boss gun, and uh, so it's an opportunity to actually see this stuff too. So yeah. That's cool. So what I guess, you know, we, we talk a lot about vintage guns and, and that's kind of what we see on dogsanddoubles.com. But what are you what specifically are you trying to learn um, and garner from from these guys with their new guns, just kind of keeping up on things, what they're doing? I mean, what is that sort of angle for you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's well, most of the English makers, the guns they are making today are the same guns they were making 100 years ago. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, Boss is pretty much making the same gun. Holland is, Purdy is, Wesley Richards pretty much is. Um, Rigby is still making, the double rifle is, it is, so all those guns are pretty much the same as they, they were in the, the heyday. Um, and I just like to see them because I like to see the new guns. And then the gun makers are there uh, and I can ask them questions. I can just, you know, I can ask them questions about how various things work on their guns. Um it's a chance, like, if you want to see the difference between a Purdy over and under and a Boss over and under, aren't, there aren't a lot of places where you can, you know, you can, at this show, the booze are right across from one another, so you can go look at one and look at it, yeah. and then you walk 10 feet, and there's the other one, and you can look at it and check it out. So if you want to really understand what the differences are um, and what makes those guns special, you have to get them in your hands, and you can talk to the guys about them, you know, and I've done this a couple times, and I know I know some of the gun makers, and a lot of it too is just a chance for me to network. And um, there's other, uh, you know, other people that you know, writers and stuff at this. I you meet up with other guys that write, and you know, network and talk about the business. And so there's a lot of that that goes on. Looking for, you know, I'm always looking for stories too, and um, looking for other stuff I can do. So yeah, cool. Yeah, what? So one other thing. Um, on the SCI show specifically before we sort of branch off, but obviously a lot of big game, big game stuff there, and you touched on it. But um, I know that AJ DeRosa, little project Upland tie here. He he did a, a film on Upland shooting in Africa. Do you see any of that at all, or is it is it just? I, I would imagine it would be kind of buried somewhere. But do you see any any Upland opportunities? Maybe they're the big game guys just sort of have like, yeah, if you want to shoot birds, you could do that too. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much what it is. Um, some of the outfitters I saw that they, it, you know, if you walk by their booth, they, they're offering, I forget the type of types of birds they were, sh- they're shooting, but I mean, I saw stuff that they have wing shooting, but most of the, I think for most of those guys, the um, wing shooting operation is, is, uh, something that you do, you know, after you've shot your Buffalo or yeah. whatever you're hunting. Um, and there's also outfitters here from uh, Spain, um, you know, from Europe and stuff like that, where they're and they're promoting a lot of uh, hunting, you know, bird hunting. Um, sure. But uh, you know, and there's also like uh, there's like a Flying Bee Ranch and Highland Hills Ranch, sort oh, yeah. of big big outfitters in the U.S. 
that offer bird hunting or are also here. So there's, there's some of it. There's more of it than in years past. Um, there's, you know, there's definitely more interest in that. And there's, you know, there's more people interested in going to Europe to go bird hunting. And so there's definitely uh, outfitters here that are, um, looking for that business. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, all right. So, so last week when we were chatting, um, we'll, we'll circle back a little bit to that. We, uh, I had just asked you about uh, looking at guns on some of the online sites, be they gunbroker.com or gunsinternational.com or whatever one you want. Uh, there's always a price listed, and then and then there's the price that you hear your buddy ended up paying for that gun. So you had, you had started to talk about sort of your approach, and you, you assume that everything is negotiable, which makes sense uh, for something like this. But I guess from a from a tactical perspective – you know, how do you, how do you go about, you know, if you're going to buy something off one of these sites, how do you sort of go about that, making that purchase and negotiating the deal? Well, for me, I pretty much, like I mentioned this last week, the first thing, if I see something, um, I tend to watch it for a little while, uh, unless, unless it's something that's really, uh, really special or the price I recognize is really low. Um, if that's the case with something, I tend to jump on it right away. And I, so if it's something that's really special, um, or if the price is really low, um, I just try to get on it and buy it cause I know it's going to disappear, you know? Yeah. Um, and if, even if it's, if it's something special and the price is crazy, then I won't, you know, obviously I won't move on it, but if everything looks good, I just, you got to get on it fast cause other people will recognize it and stuff disappears pretty quickly. You know, there's a lot of guys out there looking for stuff, other stuff, you know, if it's, if it's something that I know that there's, it's not super rare and the price is okay on, I'll just sit and wait. I'll, I'll let it sit for a while. Um, and because any salesperson, you know, if, if they list something, the first day they list it and you call them up, they're not going to lower the price pretty, you know, yeah. chances are, um, they're going to, they're going to want to wait, a, you know, a month or so before they're willing to negotiate. Um, and then after that, I will just go and, uh, call them up and talk to them about it. And, so say it's $5,000, you know, I'll offer them $3,500 and see if they'll take it. Um, and then I think pretty much all of those online vendors will, uh, they're all pretty much all willing to negotiate. Um, you can usually get something off the price. I think a lot of those guys, I think I mentioned it, like the prices they put are the, the prices they are, the prices they put in their listings are the prices they'd like to get. They aren't necessarily the prices they're willing to get. So it's, it's always in your best interest to try to negotiate, see if you can get them to throw shipping in for free. You know, it's, uh, it's just like buying a used car, you know, so, <laughs> you know, there's nothing, there's, it, it doesn't harm you at all to try to get a better price. You know, the, the worst they're going to do is say no and stick to what they have. And, uh, you can walk away and come back in another month. And there's, there's some guns online right now that have been on there for probably been on there for two years two and a half years and like every six months I go back to the guy and I, I offer him a certain amount. He says, no, I'm like, well, all right. Talk to you in six months. So, I mean, I know he's not going to sell it because the price is too high. He probably knows it. I mean, he knows it by now, but he's probably got a consigner who won't let him bring the price down on it. But, uh, you know, that's just how it goes. And then there's always something, you know, the other thing too, I think is you have, always have to be willing to walk away from a deal. Most, most stuff is, isn't special enough that you can't find something uh, just as nice or nicer if you uh, give yourself a little time. So, yeah, 
Yeah, and, and so you kind of mentioned it, and I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of this sentiment that when I'm on there looking at stuff, you know, I have this, you tend to get this sort of, I don't know if it's doubt, or you just feel like, well, all the good deals, they disappear immediately, like you kind of touched on. So if anything, if anything is sitting here for an extended period of time, then the next thought you have is what's wrong with it? You know, why is it sitting there? And, and it very clearly, it could just be that the, the guy's asking too much, but you know, so I guess you sort of, you sort of talked about it, but I mean, if, you know, you're, you're not afraid to buy something that's been sitting there for two years, if you can, to the best of your ability to determine that it's just due to price. And of course you're still going to have a, a gunsmith check it out before you buy it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of stuff typically through the reason stuff sits around is because it's overpriced. Um, that's why there's, there's, you know, 200 purdies on guns international. They're just overpriced. The market just isn't there anymore for them. Um, other times there's a lot of stuff that sits around because, uh, there just aren't a lot of guys that want it really, basically, you know, like everybody wants park, everybody wants Parkers, yeah. everybody wants Foxes. Um, there aren't, there aren't a lot of guys that want Frankots. Once you get into the Belgian stuff, once you get into German stuff, you know, once you get into more obscure stuff, there aren't a ton of guys that, uh, are looking for that stuff and recognize the value of it. So a lot of times that stuff will sit there because the people that do know that stuff and uh, they know that it's they know where the prices are. You know, they know the kind of money it brings and uh, they know that, you know, that's the kind of stuff you can oftentimes get a really great deal on just because there just simply isn't that strong a market for it. So another I think other stuff sits around, too, just because it's, um, you know, it's just not that special. There's a lot of it out there, you know. Even though, like, like Fox Sterlingworths. I mean, there's tons of Fox Sterlingworths out there, you know? Yeah. And those guns will sit around just because there's just, there's not tons of demand for them. Like a 12-gauge Fox Sterlingworth. There's just there's not tons. Of, even even if the price is great on it, it's going to sit around. And there's nobody looking for those. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, that it, that's interesting. And then I, I feel like, you know, the with a lot of the Fox guns that, you know, yeah, there's a there's a ton of them on there. There's always stuff to look at, and then, like we like we sort of started this conversation, the price, it, it you know that asking price on a lot of those is just you know it's just too high, and and that's why the stuff sits there. Um, so it's yeah, I guess it's on the it's on the consumer to get in there and negotiate and see what see what uh, the the person is actually willing to let it go for. Yeah, I think the other thing too that you see is there's a lot of people out there that. Just basically a lot of sellers who think their guns are worth a lot more than they are. Yeah. Um, the market has shifted a lot in the last four or five years, and the value on some stuff has come down. And there's people who bought guns. You know, if you bought bought some stuff in like 2008, that was really where the market was peaking. And people that bought guns then, are, you know, some of that stuff, they come back into the market, and that stuff's worth three quarters of what it was worth when they paid for it. And People, a lot of guys aren't willing to recognize that fact. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to, yeah. you know, have to acknowledge the fact that they're, you know, their $10,000 guns now worth 7,500 bucks and they're going to lose $2,500. And the other thing too, is a lot of that stuff, the market's not coming back. Like you, you there's not, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no demand out there that's just waiting to get into the market. You know, it's just not going to happen. A lot of stuff, the prices are just uh, going to be soft forever, you know. So you know, like twelve gauge Fox A grades, 
you know, there's not there's not going to be a resurgence of interest in though that's that's going to drive the price up. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, sometimes I feel like I wouldn't mind. I don't do a lot of hunting with a 12 gauge, but almost because because they seem to be like such decent deals, I almost find myself wanting to acquire a, a you know a Fox 12 gauge graded gun just because it's like it's one of the you know the other the graded sub bores are they're so so damn expensive, but. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, they're, they're, the 12s are great. They're just heavy. You know, you, it's yeah. hard to find one that weighs under seven pounds, really hard. Uh, most yeah. of them are seven and a half. It's the same thing with the Parkers. And you can buy 12-gauge, seven and a half-pound Parkers, you know, all day long. There's tons of them out there because nobody wants them, you know, yeah. So, yeah. unless they're really fantastic, unless they have, you know, unless they're fantastic condition. But uh, but. The middle of the grade, the middle of the line, sort of mediocre stuff and mediocre condition. There's just tons and tons. And there's going to be more and more out of it. There's so much of that stuff out there that people have, uh, especially like baby boomers. And, uh, they, you know, they all need to sell it. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. You mentioned uh, you mentioned a Belgian gun and some other ones. And that, that's where things tend to get a little bit obscure because – you know, like we talked about, you know, the Fox and the Parker and the LC Smith and, you know, so those American guns, they get mentioned in the literature. So they have some built up uh, sort of romance and mystique about them. But uh, a buddy of mine's got a he's got a sweet little Belgian 16 gauge and I'm going to forget the name. He had it at my camp this year and it's, you know, beautiful little gun, uh, mechanically sound, had some really nice engraving on it. And, you know, he, he of course, didn't pay uh you know, like Fox or Parker prices for this thing. So how do you, how do you go about, I mean, talk a little bit about those, you know, maybe some Belgian guns and, and, uh, French guns. Um, and then, you know, how do you, how do you dip your toe in that water? Well, yeah, I mean the Belgian stuff, the French stuff on some of the German stuff that to me is, um, that's the best value out there. So those guns tend to be, um, really well made. They may, you know, they made a wide range of them and they made stuff that was, uh, pretty low grade but like yeah. um when you get into the stuff you see most often is stuff like frank hots um so you see frank hots french stuff uh you see some manufrances around but like so but like the best thing to look for in belgian stuff is definitely your like your frank hots and those guns are pretty much all everyone you'll see over here is um very well made um I, they're built on Anson and Dealey box lock actions, which is a better design than like what a Parker is built on. I think it's a better design than a Fox. Um, and in their day, they were actually uh, more expensive than most American guns, even though nowadays the price, you know, people, the prices have shifted and they, they cost less. And if you look around, you can find those, um, you know, even like the 12 gauges are, they made them more as game guns and you can find 12 gauge Francots that weigh six and a half pounds that are really nice, original, uh, solid guns. And you can pick those up for 1500 bucks, you know, yeah. uh, as far as learning about them, that's just, you just spend time looking online at the different grades. It can be kind of confusing about, um, different grades and different qualities of them. But if you go online and look at it, you can, you know, after a little while you'll figure it out. And as far as knowing what to look for when you're buying them, again, it comes down to, you want to get stuff that, um, is as original as possible. Um, you don't want stuff that's messed with and you got to make sure the barrels are in good shape and all that type of stuff. And that's where, you know, having a gunsmith looks at it, uh, comes into play. But, uh, 
sort of the you know the, the most the biggest bang for your buck is you're definitely going to get it in uh, getting into the European stuff and sort of I like the pre World War II European stuff um, and some of the German stuff in the 50s and even to the 60s you get into like the Merkel OUs um, into the early 60s uh, those are all really nice guns too and uh, incredibly well made um, and they're great deals especially like some of the some of the Merkels are just uh, incredible deals. I, I like, I, I can't believe like, uh, the kind of quality that's in them, you know, compared to, uh, sort of the modern OUs, like the Garinis and stuff that we see today. Those guns are just, uh, to me seem so much nicer and you can buy them at a third of what those new guns cost. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, it's, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting dynamic in that you can, you know, if you buy, if you buy a gun that's new, unless you're probably in a certain league uh, of gun, but you know, you buy a, a gun that's new, it's almost like a car where you know it's going to go down in value. But we're having this conversation about vintage guns where you can, if you, you know, you probably make your money on the buy, like they say in real estate a lot. But if you do your research and you buy the right gun, you can pretty well ensure that that value of that gun is is probably going to stay the same or, or even appreciate. Well, I think you. I think you can probably. If so, if you get something, uh, the vintage stuff. If you buy the right stuff and you take care of it, I don't like. Uh, I don't think you're ever going to get really hurt on the prices. Um, but you know, you want to be buying. You know, like twenty gauge guns, twenty eight gauge guns, and sixteens. Uh, there's going to continue to be demand for that stuff. Uh, you know, because people. Uh, use you know those are that's just what people want nowadays. That's what people use for upland hunting. That's what people use for quail hunting, you know. And uh, you know a lot of people use twenties and stuff even for pheasant hunting. Uh, it could be tough though. You know, there's fewer. There seems to be fewer and fewer people interested in side by sides though. Yeah. Um, so it can be tough. I mean, I, I don't. If I was looking to, uh, so let's just put it this way: guns are a bad investment. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> So you may be able to get your money out of, so if you went and bought a really nice Parker, you know, VHE 20 gauge, I don't know, it cost you 5,000 bucks. Could you get $5,000 out of it in 10 years? You know, hopefully you could, but I think there's a, um, you should just focus more on it, uh, being able to appreciate it and having, having it mean something to you, uh, rather than trying to hope that it's going to go up in value, uh, you know, cause it's just, that's seems like to me a little more, a little riskier than I would want to be. So if you, if, you know, if that's the only reason you're buying it, if that, if you, if you have to be that concerned about the money, uh, if you have to be that concerned with the money, you should put it in a, uh, you know, an ETF fund or something like that. <laughs> that's yeah, a better, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad you said it. Cause I was going to follow up with that, that, yeah, it's, you know, not necessarily talking about these things like they are investments. I mean, certainly some cases they can't appreciate in value, but but you can, you know, by by getting in this vintage gun market, you could buy quality. You know, I feel like I feel like you can you can stretch your dollar a little bit. You know, if you really get the right buy, um, and you you can buy some quality stuff, and that that dollar compared to you know today's dollar buying a brand new gun for MSRP, uh, you know, out of your local big box shop or whatever, you know, you, I think you can, you can do pretty well there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm, and the thing is, I just, I just like old guns too. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. Like, I'm, you know, I'm at this, at this show that I'm at, there are, uh, 
all you know brand new purdy over and unders all sorts of these incredible guns and they're all brand new and they just don't move me the way that uh that old stuff does you know i'm <laughs> just yeah or for whatever reason i just I'm, i just like old stuff so i like old guns that's why i don't that's why i don't own anything you know a new greening or a new berettas or anything like that yeah yeah it's you know it's been said many times before but there is something special about carrying an old gun you know while you're out in the grouse woods or the pheasant fields or wherever you are and you just sort of look down at that gun and think to yourself you know i'm not the first person to carry this through through the uplands and shoot birds with it and you know they they have that story and and you know and maybe sometimes oftentimes like in my case that story is unknown i don't really know the story behind my gun but then in other cases you have where a gun's been passed down from generation to generation and i mean how you know that's that's priceless you can't you can't put a value on that oh yeah to to know that your grandfather yeah. great-grandfather carried something like that all right so um we talked a little bit about english guns i want to i want you to talk about sort of touch on that because you know the the english guns are sort of held you know british british best guns you know and i could have these terms all wrong and you can you can let me know but they sort of held in very high regard in that they they're much more than a tool. They are, you know, a calculated and crafted piece of, you know, gunning, shotgunning history, uh, you know, when it comes to balance and, and workmanship. So what, what makes a, what makes an English best or British best gun? Well, um, that's a good question. Uh, so I think, what makes it the best? So to me, you know, it's, it's hard. It's definitely, it's not the, it's not the name on the gun that makes it a best yeah. quality gun, but certain names have typically made more best quality guns or, or have typically made more guns of higher quality than other names. So that's why, that's why Purdy's are nice because Purdy made really nice, high quality guns for a very long time and still does. It's not to say that every single Purdy is fantastic, but for the most part, they're really nice guns. Same thing with Bosses and Hollands. Um, and what they basically, when you get into, when you're talking about best quality stuff, um, it's basically the gun um, is made to the highest standards uh, possible. So regardless of the types of, regardless of it being a box lock or being a side lock, um, the craftsmanship that went into building it was at the highest level possible. So the metal to metal fit is perfect. The way the gun is filed up, everything's filed up so that it um, is proportional. It looks correct. Uh, the gun's aesthetically pleasing. It uses, uh, you know, high quality materials, so high quality metals. Um, it uses high quality finishes, so it has really nice bluing. Um, has really nice color case hardening. Usually has you know really really high quality engraving, has good wood, so it has all of these components are brought together, and the way the gun itself functions is uh, also of the highest quality. So as far as the gun's functioning, this is something that you have to handle a lot of these different guns to really understand what that's all about. But uh, the way a best quality gun feels, um, they typically feel lighter than they are. Just because yeah. the way guns are constructed and balanced, um, they tend to feel very dynamic. You pick them up and 
you know, they, they, they feel they, they, they're kind of alive. They're just, uh, it's not like, it's not like picking up a block of wood. You pick up a block of wood and it just feels like, you know, a chunk of wood. That's it. There's nothing dynamic about it, but you pick up these guns and they have, uh, there's something live about them. They just, uh, have this energy to them and it has to do with the way they're balanced. Um, and the best gun makers knew how to balance the guns so that you got this type of feel out of them. And that was all in that all lends to, um, how well you shoot them. Um, they're, they're much, it's just easier to mount them. It's easier to, you know, pick up your target with them, um, and to do all those things with them. And, uh, the other thick components are, you know, just the way the gun, when you assemble it and disassemble it, the way everything goes together, uh, nothing needs to be forced. Like when you put the end on, you don't have to squeeze it on. It just kind of pops on perfectly. So there's a lot of precision fitting. Um, when you work the top lever on a best quality gun, um, when it opens and closes, uh, it has a very distinct feel to it. And if you handle enough of them, you, you, you pick that up pretty quickly. Uh, so all of those things and all these things don't sound like they're a big deal. Uh, but to get a gun that has all of them, that has all of these attributes in it is, uh, you know, that requires a ton of work. You know, you, you have to have people who are really skilled at building them spend a lot of time making them. So that's why they tend to cost a lot of money. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, sort of the, the feel and the aliveness, cause that's, that's sort of the things that I have heard more of that intangible, uh, where you just, you just pick it up and it's just, it's alive in your hands. I, I don't, I don't think I can say that I've really felt that. I mean, I haven't, I don't know that I've handled enough of those kind of guns to really, to really know that. Um, but it's, it's cool. And actually, uh, Del Whitman talked about that quite a bit, I think on sort of on how they got to that level and, and sort of the history of gun making, you know, pre, pre-war like they just had a lot more manpower and resources to spend those hours on on those guns and and really make them that way whereas you know it's just not the case today really unless you want to pay for it as you mentioned yeah well yeah people people were a lot cheaper back then and the guns themselves proportionately were less expensive so today so i was over there was the i saw some new brand new purdies uh, Purdy over and unders, and they were two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. You know, which, which is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, so fifty, sixty years ago, now you may still say like before World War II in the nineteen thirties, um, you could buy a brand new Boss OU, um, and it was expensive, but it was probably twenty-five thousand dollars in today's money. You know. Um, yeah. 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 So. Things of and that, a lot of that has to do with the simple fact that those guys, the guys making them, didn't get paid anything, you know. And nowadays, the gun makers have, you know, they've got to pay the guys a lot more to make them, and there's just a lot more costs that go into all of it. And the guns themselves, I think, have just gotten more expensive too. Uh, but uh, but they definitely they used to be they used to be proportionately more affordable um, many years ago. So not any longer. Yeah, well, I, I would get. I would sort of, you know, and this is just speculation on my part, but, you know, back then, I think probably having and owning a gun, you know, it's, it's, it's so much a part of my life that it's, I'm almost like, don't, 
you you wouldn't think about this unless you stop and think about it. But like, not there are a lot of people in this world that could care less whether or not they own a gun. And back then, you know, it was more like, yeah, you had the family gun to, especially in America, I think, you know, to go out back and and shoot something for the table. Whereas that's not the case now. So those so those you know those those gun makers have totally flipped into like you know the elite luxury category. Whereas before they they probably had a bigger market, really. Oh, yeah, yeah. No doubt about it. There was a much, much bigger market. Everybody hunt and everybody in hunting was uh, was a much bigger pastime in, the, in America, you know, in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, everybody, you know, everybody bird hunted. That was just what people did. And uh, and all classes of people did it. And, you know, there were tons. There was lots of demand for Purdy's and Parker's and all those guns. And, uh, you know, that's not coming back. It's just not. There's just there isn't the hunting land that there used to be. There used to be, you know, all in New England in the 1920s was grouse cover, pretty much, you know, the whole place. Yep. Yep. Uh, and nowadays, you know, good luck trying to find a grouse in Rhode Island or Connecticut or, you know, Eastern Massachusetts. So. Yeah, I, I uh, recently within the last month or so, I finished up reading uh, New England Grouse Shooting by William Harden Foster for the first time. He, it was a, it was a really, you know, obviously that book has been talked about a lot, but that's it was it was a really neat perspective on sort of the way that he saw things and and you know talked about New England Grouse Shooting, obviously the title of the book, and and yeah, it's just it's not that way anymore. And, you know, I'm, I consider myself really lucky to live in the, the North country, upper, upper Midwest where we still have public lands, but I know that that's not the case for a lot of people listening to this podcast. And, and, you know, I, I feel very fortunate and I really, I really wanted to stay that way, but, but the, the world has changed absolutely as far as uh, access to hunting and it's often places it's a, you know, it's pay to play kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I know in New England, it's amazing. I, I just drive around and I see all the places that I, I always think to myself, that must have been a great place to, there must have been great grouse hunting there, you know, yeah. before they built all those friggin' houses. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So. Yeah. So uh, I, I interviewed Dell Whitman earlier this week for an episode of the podcast, and we talked a lot about um, gun fit and a little bit about vintage gun buying. Uh, he knows a thing or two about it. So, when you're when you're buying guns, do you have a separation between between a gun that you're collecting and then a gun that you want to use? I mean, do you want to use everything you buy, or do you not care to? Do you have a rotation of guns that you like, and you're not really trying to squeeze anything else in there? But I guess my ultimate question is, you know, do you are you paying attention to the dimensions and and the fit of a gun when you buy it, or do you buy for different reasons? So I pay I pay attention to the dimensions, but I'm not crazy about it. Um, okay. I'm I'm not really all that in- interested in hitting stuff. That sounds kind of weird. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not, but I, I'm not like a target shooter. You know, yeah. I don't. Yep. I, I I do. I'll go over and shoot sporting clays and stuff like that because it's fun to do, and it gets me out shooting the guns. But I'm not obsessive about it. I'm not competitive, and I don't care to be. And so I'm not obsessive about the fit of my guns and all that type of thing. I can I tend to shoot um, guns. So what I look if if it's about 14 and a half inch length of pull, and the drop isn't anything more than two and three quarters, I can shoot it pretty well, you know. And I don't really. I'm sure if I uh, went and had a gun fitting and went through that whole process and 
and had a stock, you know, had a gun properly fitted to me, I could probably shoot it better. But it's not something that's at the forefront of my decision making when I'm looking to buy a gun. You know, I just like them because they're I just a lot of it's just aesthetic for me. I just think they're beautiful. I just think they're cool. And yeah. uh, I just want to own them and I'll take them out and use them. And when I hunt birds, if I don't, if I don't kill the bird, if I miss, uh, it, it, it's not the end of the day for me. I'm really not out there. Uh, so killing birds is an essential part of the experience. But for me, um, seeing birds and getting my dogs on birds is just as essential. So if I don't actually shoot the things and, you know, if I miss it, it doesn't, doesn't annoy me. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I would kind of wanted to get your perspective on it. So, so you've never, you know, for a guy that's bought a lot of vintage guns, you've never been, been quote unquote professionally fit for a shotgun. No, no, never. I mean, I have, I've never been fitted. I've had stuff. uh, I've had a lot of guns in different dimensions and I know which ones uh, tend to feel best. Uh, but I've never been fitted. Um, and I mean, it was something, if, if I were going to have a gun restocked or something like that, I would go get yeah. fitting done. Cause I'd want the stock, you know, I want the gun to fit me. If I was going to have a gun made again, I'd have it, I'd go to, uh, fitting. Um, and I, and I know that like for, I don't like, I don't want anything that has more than two and three quarter inches of drop just because guns with a ton of drop are definitely, that's a hindrance to you know, big hindrance to shooting them well. And it's, you know, I want to be able to hit something with them. Uh, it's not like I'd, I have no concerns at all with, with the shooting birds. Uh, it's just that I, I know people who are obsessive about it, you know, like to within an eighth of an inch and they've got all these different dimensions and the different casts and all these things. And I don't really, uh, I just don't, um, I guess I don't shoot at that level. You know, like if I was a serious competitive, uh, shooter sport a clay shooter or a live pigeon shooter then that stuff would matter uh but doesn't matter to me so yeah yeah no that makes sense and 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 really you know unless you like until i before i bought the fox sterlingworth that i had that i have i i never i didn't know anything about drop and you know when you pick up a gun that has more drop than say modern dimension so you mentioned two and three quarters i my gun has three inches of drop on it and it's got a pretty short length of pull too so the more the more like the pull you have on there the longer the drop or the more the drop but but until you pick something up like that you almost have no idea like that's they they used to shoot guns differently and and yeah. you know i've i've researched it a little bit but that's a that's i think that's a you know it's a it's a bigger difference maker than say a length of pole measurement where you can you can adjust for that and you can adjust to really shoot anything but um yeah like you like you mentioned it's it's you know it's a the marginal difference that you see from a quarter of an inch here quarter of an inch there you know certainly certainly it could be there but it's how much is that worth to you and how much do you value that and and all yeah. that stuff goes into that. Yeah, and I don't want to buy guns at like a like a short stock. I don't. I I, I know that I want around fourteen and a half inch like the pull. And um, if I can get a gun that's close to that, I can put a pad on it and get it out. But yep. if the gun is a twelve inch like the pull, then I don't want anything to do with it because what are you going to do with it? I don't want to put a you know two and a half inch pad on the back of the thing or a big piece of wood because they look like crap. Um, so I mean I, I do have I do pay attention to that type of stuff and I find that 
Um, a stock that's too short is to me more annoying than a, gun, a stock with a lot of drop. I find that yeah. I don't want to be crowded on the gun like that. Um, sure. and I tend to shoot with my head up. I don't, I'm not a big, uh, you know, bring my cheek down of the comb and lock it to the comb. I don't do that, especially when I bird hunt. Um, so that's how those guys were shooting those guns with all the drop. They're holding their heads up a lot. Uh, yeah. And now everybody, you know, when you shoot target guns and stuff, you bring your cheek down to the comb and you like lock onto the gun. Yep. That's why you really notice, like if you're used to doing that and you pick up a fox, I mean, you're, the only thing you're going to see is the back of it, you know, the top lever because there's just too much drop in the gun. So. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, all uh, all interesting stuff to talk about when we when we look at these guns. Um, so I was I was paging through dogs and doubles a little bit and saw was looking at some of your good gun alerts recently. There was a you had posted. We talked a little bit about this earlier, but we we uh, you had posted a Fox Sterlingworth 16 gauge that was for sale for like 600 bucks at Canalis yeah. somewhere. And obviously, I, I clicked on the link, and obviously that gun is gone. But yeah. I mean. How did you how did you even see that before it was gone? I see I I just I'm just obsessive about searching for stuff. <laughs> you know great great you know all, right? <laughs> yeah, I just look all the time. I just I've been doing it for so long, I just have a habit of it. You know, like I I get up early in the morning anyway. I work out early and you know, it's quarter to 5 in the morning. The first thing I do is I I scroll through the Guns International stuff to see if there's anything on there. So I do that, you know, if you do that obsessively, you'll find stuff. It's, uh, but I know that Cabela's, there's a lot of, so there's a lot of other people that doing the same thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, I've many, I've seen plenty of things on Cabela's that I've tried to buy. Like the second I, it, it couldn't have been listed for more than 12 hours and it's gone by the time I get to it. Um, it's really hard to, it's really hard to find anything. Like when they, when they have, when they have deals that great, it's really hard to, uh, you know, to be the first person to, to see it and recognize it and jump on it. So, and when yes. the other thing, the other thing I should say about guns international is if you see something and you want it, call them, don't email mm -hmm. because a lot of guys, you know, that they, I, I, so what I do is I pick up the phone and I, if it's, if it's a time when I can talk to them, it's reasonable. I'll try to, I'll call them right away and I'll also send an email. So that way, if they, if I don't get them on the phone, they'll have an email for me and they keep trying, but I've, especially Cabela's, they don't seem to check their emails very much. So, uh, always pick up the phone and call as soon as you see it. Yeah. In, uh, in today's day and age of, uh, instant, uh, you know, text messaging and emailing and communication is super easy, but if I've learned anything, I've learned that if you need to get something done, pick up the phone because, uh, it's still a really effective means of, uh, getting things done. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've, I've, I've sent emails to people about stuff and, you know, I don't hear back from them for three days. You know, I'm always amazed that some people don't respond that quickly, but if you're with the gun stuff, that's typically in the gun. If it's a great deal like that, Sterlingworth was, it'll disappear, you know? So, yeah. Um, so sort of along those lines, if you, you see something out of Cabela's and, you know, it was listed, I don't know if it was Ohio or whatever, but if you call them up, how do you how do you buy it? I mean, how do you buy it before somebody walks into the store and takes it for money? Are they pretty they pretty good about like you have to put a deposit down, give them a credit card number? How does that work? Well, uh, you typically can just buy it and have it shipped to an FFL. So, okay. so the so other it's, thing, you, it's all in one. You're just you're calling them. I want it. Here's my information. 
Yeah, yeah, just call them up and buy the thing. So the other thing you can do is you can call them up and you can, um, I think for like 25 bucks or something, they'll ship. Uh, so if you have a, a, a Cabela's right near you, they'll ship the gun to the Cabela's near you and you can go look at it. Um, but if the gun's really nice, they're going to sell it first. Correct, yeah. Um, so that's yeah. not... You don't want to mess around like that if it's a really if it's something really special and it's a really good deal. Which you know, Cabela's used to have when they first started selling stuff online. They used to have low prices all the time. It was ridiculous. It was a fantastic place to get uh, good stuff at great, you know, fantastic prices. And then they smartened up and they started putting prices that were way too high on stuff. So uh, <laughs> now they have all sorts of stuff and it just sits there and the prices are ridiculous and they just don't get the inventory they used to. They used to get much nicer stuff all the time. So are they uh are they selling these guns on cons- consignment or are they all trade-ins or how what does the, you know, majority I think a lot of them, I think a lot of the nice stuff is consigned. Um okay. they used to buy stuff but I, I think they stopped doing it. I think they, uh, the difficulty with, um, so the difficulty any gun shop has that sells really nice stuff is uh, getting people to work there that know that stuff. So that can value the stuff properly, can can inspect it properly. Um, and I think Cabela's probably may have run into an issue with that. And so it's, it's just, it's just, it's just very, very difficult to, you know, to have a staff that can work in that, the gun library in Cabela's, they keep it staffed all the time with people who are very knowledgeable about very fine guns, you know, they just, and pay what they pay, you know? So. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's flip the script a little bit here. Cause we've talked so much about buying guns. Let's say I've got a gun to sell. Where, where are we going to start? Where are you going to sell a gun? What are you going to do? Are you going to drop it on consignment at a local shop or put it on a website? How does that process work? Well, I, I would, I've sold stuff through guns international. I've sold stuff on gun broker. Um, and I've sent stuff to auction and I guess it all comes down to what you have. Yeah. Uh, yep. so gun broker is a great venue, but you got to deal with, um, you got to, you got to take a lot of pictures you got to put up a really good description. And um, I think there's, you know, I, everything I've sold there, I've got a good price for. But then you also have to worry about, you've got to send the stuff out to people. And you got you have to pretty much have to offer a three-day inspection on stuff. So it can come back. It's like selling through Guns International. Um, and sometimes uh, some of the people that you run into on there can be difficult, um, can be pains in the butt about stuff. Uh, you can get stuff sent back for, you know, even though you told people, you, you know, describe things as best as possible, uh, they don't like it and they send it back. And, and, and then you have to process the money back and forth. And because you can't use, uh, you know, you can't use PayPal on that stuff through Guns Internet, like Guns America or a gun broker, you know, they, it's just the process through that can be a pain in the butt. And the same thing with like Guns International, the process of you selling it on your own can be a pain in the butt. Um, so what I do now most of the time is I send stuff to uh, an auctioneer up in Maine called Poolins, um, and I just let them deal with it. And you know they take they'll take like ten percent, but I don't have to deal with any hassle. And I know that thirty days after the auction, I'm going to get a check. You know, um, and they typically get you know really good prices. So 
if you have some stuff that's really special, you can put it on Guns International or something like that. And uh, if you have uh, good pictures and good descriptions, you'll, you'll attract an audience. Um, and if you don't mind, you know, going through the trouble of mailing the stuff to people and dealing with uh, bank checks and the time all that can take, uh, you know, that's still a good way to go. But I prefer the auctions. There's no hassle. I drop the stuff off. They deal with everything. They take, like I said, they take a cut and they send me a check. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. And uh, you know, like you said, it's it's what what do you have? You know, is it rare? Is it is it a commodity gun? You know, where you yeah, yeah. I mean, if, you have, if you have a bunch of nice stuff, you can negotiate better rates with auctioneers. And like you know, auctions can be. You have to be careful about which auctioneers you send stuff to. And I I help people out with that a lot where. Um, I help them, you know, I look at what they have and I help them identify the best auctioneers and the best venues for selling stuff. Certain auctioneers are better for certain types of guns. Um, you know, there's some auctioneers that, you know, if you have just sort of middle of the great middle of the road stuff, um, you send it to them. And if you have really great stuff, there's other auctioneers for that. Different auctioneers have cultivated different clientele and client bases, customer bases. So you have to be knowledgeable about, you know, to maximize your, the sell, you have to be knowledgeable about that kind of stuff. And I, you know, I help people out with that all the time. So, Cool. All right. Well, it's, uh, you know, it's early 2018. We got a, we got a long off season ahead of us, Greg, what, uh, any big plans for you this year, anything coming with dogs and doubles.com or, or, uh, or are we just, uh, holding our breath until, uh, next September. Ah, oh, I, I'm going to be, I'm trying to relaunch my site right now uh, with a little okay. redesign so that's uh, one of the things I didn't, I didn't realize my site wasn't responsive. Um, so uh, I've been trying oh, to get, yeah, like, like uh, for mobile, mobile device. Yeah. Right? yeah I didn't realize that. I mean, uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm moving to a responsive platform. Um, and other than that, I'm just, you know, trying to do more good stories. Uh, I might go to the uh, Southern side by, side which is in what's that in south north carolina i think it's in north carolina in um sure. april that's a big um show for vintage guns yep. and if you're into if you're into that stuff that's probably the best show to go to if you want to see a lot of stuff uh it's definitely the place to be uh and i, I might go this year i went last year um it's a good place uh other than that i'm gonna be i'll be gearing up for the uh spring field trials with my dogs so yep. Trial start. I think this trial start in March, and uh, I'll be running my dogs in probably two or three different trials. I'll go to some of the. There's a. I think there's about a half dozen trials that are in the New England area, and I usually try to go to a few of them. Um, just you know, run my dogs. Some of them, and I like to see the other dogs. And then the woodcock will be coming back. So the end of end of March, the woodcock usually show up, and. Uh, so I'll go out and for, you know, two or three weeks, go out and run my dogs on the returning woodcock just to get them back out in the field. And, uh, you know, before the woodcock go back on their nests. So. Yeah, that's uh oh man, the spring season is, is I guess right, right behind hunting season. It's, it's my favorite season of the year. I absolutely love being in the spring woods when, you know, the, the snow melts and, and the air is, the air has got a little bit of warmth back into it, and, and the you know the grouse are still there. The woodcock are making their way back. I love running my dog in the spring woods before uh, before most of the quiet 
periods kick in. Uh, yeah, yep. we've got some grouse. We've got some grouse trials around here that I'll uh, I like to go and spectate. I, I I ran my dog in one once actually, um, but they're fun. It's, you know, it's fun to it's fun to watch watch the dogs and and uh, see what's out there. Um, the uh, I wanted to ask you when you mentioned the southern side by side shoot. What about the great? I think it's called the Great Northern one. It's in Medford, Wisconsin. Have you ever been to that one? It used to be somewhere else. I know that. I've never been to that one. No. Okay. But if anybody, cool. if you want to see stuff, those are the best places to go. Like uh, the southern side by side is, uh, there's tons of vendors there. There's all sorts of uh, all sorts of different guns to see. Um, it's a real laid back environment. You can just go and check stuff out, and you'll see. You spend two days there, and you'll see more guns there than. And they're nicer guns, more more nice guns there than there are in London, anywhere else. You know, there's a lot of good guns. Uh, at the Southern, at the Safari club show, but there's more at the Southern side by side. So, yeah. Yeah. I know we've got a, we've got a few, you know, smaller, smaller shoots, but I've got one here locally in Duluth and there's a few around here. So I guess uh pro tip people uh, check out those local, local uh, side-by-side shoots or be they vintage gun shoots or 16 gauge shoots, whatever they are, check those out. Spring shoots coming up. It's a good spot for them. Uh, Greg, it was it was a pleasure having you back on the podcast. Uh, I'm sure this won't be the last time we uh, we chat with you, and and uh, we'll look forward to we'll look forward to some of your writing coming up uh, with Project Upland and uh, on DogsAndDoubles.com. Your good gun alerts; those are uh, those are always there for people. Uh, again, really appreciate it, Greg, and uh, thanks for joining us. Great, thanks a lot, Nick. I really I really enjoyed it. All right, Greg, take care and uh, safe travels back home. All right, thanks. Have a good day. Hey, everybody. Nick Larson with the Project Upland Podcast. Just wanted to take a second to thank you again for listening to this episode of the show and remind you that, as always, we are brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Krause Camp. As always, we appreciate your feedback. Please don't hesitate to contact us via projectupland.com or by emailing me directly at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.